Well, hello again, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. Tony Payne here with you again. And and Philip, we're together again. Yes, yes. Two men who are not both sick or either sick. (laughs) It feels like it's been weeks. Uh, Thanks for being with us here again today, dear listener. Great to have you with us. And as promised, we're getting back to a question that was raised a couple of weeks ago in a really great email from Craig, who lives in the US. Uh, And he had a question about the nature of church meetings, about atmosphere in church gatherings. And I'll read you the question from his email because it was a very good question. Uh, He puts it like this. He says, we have a rapidly growing independent church in our area that is basically Reformed Baptist in theology and not charismatic. The senior minister is a true evangelist. They're seeing hundreds of people declaring their faith in Jesus as Saviour and Lord, which is terrific. Uh, I'd watched some portions of their meetings online and thought it would be useful to attend in person. I was totally unprepared for the intensity of the experience. I once attended Hillsong in Surrey Hills, and this far exceeded that. Except for stage lighting, the room was pitch black. The lights constantly changed colour. There was fog that created a moving glow over the stage. And the sound was so intense, I could feel the pressure on my chest. I opened an acoustic analysis app on my phone, measured sound levels, and they were continuously in excess of an ear-damaging 100 decibels. Total multi-sensory overload. I don't pretend to know their intent, but either purposely or inadvertently, they seemed to be artificially inducing the experience of Isaiah's vision or Paul on the road to Damascus. And so here's Craig's question. Do you think that the second commandment is more than a prohibition of a visual representation of God, but that it prohibits simulating God's presence in any manner, such as in this kind of service, I guess he's meaning. Does the use of sensory mechanisms to enhance worship collide with the second commandment at some point? It's a good question, but I was was amused by his description. That is, he sounds like an old man not liking anything of the new. But then he's able to pull out his phone and measure the decibel levels. I was very impressed by that. A very young man who's able to do it. So I I don't know who Craig is, but you have me guessing on age range, Craig, somewhere between (laughs) 20 and 80. (laughs) (laughs) That narrows it down quite a lot. It's a fascinating question he raises, and it's very relevant to us because it's not just fairly extreme examples of this kind of sensory overload intense kind of church experience, which most of us, I think, as evangelicals, would go along like Craig to this and think, wow, what's going on here? This seems, this doesn't seem right somehow, but can I put my finger on why? But the question of what sort of atmosphere we do create in church, whether it's appropriate to turn down the lights at different points, turn up the lights, what the music should create, how do we use music to create atmosphere or emotion, these are live questions in our churches, I think. They really are, and uh, we need to address them. But I think Craig's come at it from a very important element, that is, what's the relationship between the Old and New Testament? Yes, because he raises the second commandment, the commandment against idolatry against forming a visual representation of God. So let's start our conversation there because it seems to me as I've thought about this that there's a couple of Old Testament to New Testament issues we kind of need to chat through that would be helpful here, I think. Very important because the Reformation was about that too, wasn't it? In that Rome was trying to reconstruct church as Old Testament temple worship. With sacrifice yes. and with um, with robes and with incense and with that kind of vibe. Yes, and 
the the Reformation Church was seen to be bland and boring and they were the iconoclasts. Yes. Literally, we we destroyed the images. Yeah, literally, the iconoclasts. But today, it's it's not the issue just of Romans within Protestantism that. So he's talking of his church, which he described as Reformed. Reformed Baptist, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's think about Old Testament, New Testament. Let's think of it firstly in terms of the commandments themselves, because Craig raises the second commandment, the commandment about idolatry. In one sense, kind of on face value, you would say that this doesn't fit under the second commandment because it's about a visual represent, representation of God. It's it's prohibiting any attempt to make an image and thereby to represent the God of Israel and to worship him via that image. That's the essence of idolatry. It's about the creation of a visual representation, and it forbids that. This is not a visual representation. It's a sensory kind of experience. So does that mean Craig's kind of intuition does this have something to do with the second commandment is is a good intuition or not well there's a certain element to it that he's right but i'm just thinking the golden calf visual imagery that was uh, idolatrous but they rose up to play to eat and drink and, and to, to play yes, yes that's right and yes. so the expression of the golden calf the expression of religion of that idolatry uh, was more than just seeing god in visual terms it was, and it also relates to how we read the Old Testament commandments as well. Um, in one sense, the commandment is a shorthand, almost rule of thumb. It's a rule that tells you something you must not do or must do. But when Jesus comes to teach us how to read the law and apply the law, he kind of does warn us about trying to restrict it too much, trying to minimise the impact of the law. That's certainly the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? Chapter 5 where illustration after illustration of the righteousness of the Pharisees that the disciples must exceed uh, had to do with minimising the the requirement of you shall not murder or you shall not commit adultery rather than going to the essence and heart of what the commandment is to see its maximum application. Or you also said in, say, 1 Timothy, you know, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain in one sense, it is about oxen, it is about grain. But in another sense, why is that to be the case? Well, because the labourer is deserving of his, uh, of his wage, and so it applies out to Christian ministry. So we, we need to be careful not to, to try and minimise and so define the law as to only apply without its essence to anything else. And so just not must make or, or represent God visually. There's more to it than that, yes. Yes, I think there is more to it because the way we read and understand the law depends on how we see what we see the law as being. Whether it's just a kind of an arbitrary set of rules that are kind of just imposed on the world or whether it represents and expresses and embodies something about the way the world really is and the way God really is, whether it's connected to a deeper kind of moral meaning and theological meaning that, that describes not only who God is and who we are, but how the world is. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. When you see do not murder, it's part of a deeper structure of meaning that has to do with why anger is wrong and insult is wrong and why contempt for other people is wrong. 
do not murder is kind of like the headline shorthand rule of thumb, but it teaches you something about the structure of reality in a way. And so I kind of think that if we're going to think about what does the second commandment reveal about how we worship and relate to God, about who God is, there is a deeper theological kind of structure underneath that. And we see that in the Old Testament at various points. Well, there's two things to it. One is the the Spirit comes to write the law in our heart and move us to be obedient to it, as Ezekiel 36 promises. But also the Old Testament, when the giving of the law comes in the context, so the, the law about idolatry comes in Deuteronomy 5, comes in the context of chapter 4 of the whole Sinai experience. And so Deuteronomy 4, that's a great segue. I had Deuteronomy 4 written down here in my notes, Philip, because it does kind of um, give give the rationale for the commandment and explain what it is about God and why they must not represent him. Let me read you some of Deuteronomy 4, uh, say starting from verse 9. He says, Only take care... And keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. So what your eyes have seen, that's interesting. Make them known to your children and to your children's children, how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. And you came near... And stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is the Ten Commandments. He wrote them on the two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded, Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rule that you might do them in the land. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female or any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heavens. Don't forget what you've seen, says Moses, very pointedly. And what you saw was... Nothing. Absolutely nothing. You saw no form. You only heard God's voice. And this is a primary basic thing, it seems to me, about the God of Israel and how he relates to his people. Yes, that's absolutely right. The the word is so central. And the word, not what you see the word you hear. But in terms of Craig's question, the word came in a very atmospheric fashion at Mount Horeb. The, the, the mountain shook. The, there was fire. There darkness, was fire and darkness, etc. So should we present the word of God in an atmospheric sense like God did? Yes, with darkness and gloom. I want to come to that, but I want to make sure we don't miss that first point in terms of the deeper rationale of the Old Testament law. Part of what that commandment is telling us is that God communicates to his people by words. He speaks to us. That's how he reveals himself to us. He doesn't reveal himself in any physical form. 
And so to seek to worship him in any physical way, to seek to represent him, or even to seek to touch him or reach out to him or in some way make him present physically, goes against who God is. He, he has no physical form. He relates to us by speaking to us and by um, eliciting a response from us by his spirit in our hearts. I think theologically that's a very important thing that lies under this Old Testament commandment. Yeah, I'm agreeing with you there completely. But if I can put a but in. Yes, let's get to this other question. But within the Old Testament, it's not a matter of him revealing himself to us this way, but as he organised the worship in the Old Testament, it was very visual, uh, not just Mount Horeb and what he did on Mount Horeb, but you know, priests and temple and sacrifices. Um, that worship of God, Old Testament worship was very sensory. Very much so. You've got incense, you've got the tem- in the temple kind of precinct and all the activities there. You have a particular place that you go. You have the presence that's in the Holy of Holies. You have the burning of fire. You have the sacrifice. You have blood being splattered everywhere. You have... It is very atmospheric in that sense, very physical, very sensual uh, in the way that it represents the way we are, to, Israel was to approach God. And this is the second aspect, I think, of how the Old Testament relation to the New Testament kind of informs our answer to this question. And that is that all of that, it seems to me, in the New Testament is described as the shadow to which the reality is Christ. But it's strange to us because... We look back on those things and we think, wow, that seems more substantial and real if you, compared to just having words or Jesus. But the New Testament says it's the other way around. Doing things in that way, in Colossians 2, Sabbaths and all the Old Testament kind of paraphernalia, that was the, the shadow, the substance has now arrived in Christ. So how does that work, do you think? How is it that the Old Testament physicality was the shadow? Yes, for many years, uh, my wife, who then was my fiance, we were separated by hundreds of miles because she was teaching up the country while I was in college. All I had was a, uh, a picture of her. I would look at the picture from time to time and think very fondly of her and the like, but I tell you, when she turned up, I never bothered with the picture. You know, I mean, The picture lost all interest once she turned up. I found it in my, uh, in my wallet many years after we were married and I looked at it and I thought, no, I prefer her. The reality is much more important than the image of the reality. So the Old Testament was imaging for us what Christ would be when he arrived. But when he turned up? Who who wants the image anymore? You've got the reality. Yes. Which is the message of Colossians really, isn't it? That Christ has come in all the fullness of God the Son for whom and by whom all things were created. He's now come. He's reconciled all things to himself through his his blood on the cross. He's defeated the powers. And you, if you have him, you've got everything. You you are fullness, he says, because you have Christ. So why would you go back to these other things? It's the the message of the whole of the Epistle of Hebrews. Indeed. You know, the, the... The priest has arrived, the sacrifice has arrived, the temple has arrived. We, we have it all in Christ Jesus. We must go out from outside the camp. We must follow him. Yes. So because Jesus has come, because God has spoken his final word in his son in that sort of way, and because we come to know Christ, to participate in him, 
to have him in all his fullness through the gospel, that is through hearing this news and responding to it, then the time for those more sensory or physical kind of representation of, of God's presence and our relation to him, that time's passed. And to go back to that is a retrograde step. And that's that's really the message of Colossians 2 as well, isn't it? That to go back to new moons and Sabbaths or to seek ascetic experiences or visionary experiences in some sort of way to somehow ascend to a, a deeper spirituality is a huge mistake. It's a backward step. Yes, there are two kinds of M ministries that uh, are a mistake in that regard when you go back. One is to go back to mysticism. The other is to go back to manipulation. And quite often they're mixed together. That is that uh, I know God because of my mystical experiencing of him. Uh, no, I know God because he made himself known in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the manipulation of Canaanite religion, of nature religions, is that by doing certain things I can get the God or the gods to give me things. Well, we see it in the prosperity religions of today which are around the world and causing terrible harm to the Christian message and so you wind up with a combination of these two things if I can create a church service a, a gathering that has my experiencing of God then somehow in my experiencing of God I'll be so close to him that he will give me what I want him to give me namely my prosperity so it's a weird thing to to want that super spirituality in order to have material prosperity. It's interesting too, culturally, if you think about where we are as a Western culture, that we're more open in a sense at this point to a mystical approach to God because of the Enlightenment, because we've come to think as a culture that the physical and all that we can understand scientifically and materially that's this zone that we live in. And if there is any spiritual zone, if there is any kind of God, it's it's off in a kind of higher plane, uh, the plane of feeling and the plane of of uh, the noumenal, of, of experiencing something beyond the rational and physical. That's where God might live, if he lives at all. Yes. In a sense, kind of crafting a church experience that kind of locates God in this other more kind of mystical zone does kind of fit experientially and culturally with where we are as well. Yes, it's it's the postmodern reaction to modernism. It's the sense that genuine authenticity is experientially feeling rather than intellectually analysing or understanding, especially in the light of modernism whereby intellectual understanding, atheism, has reigned supreme. And so without an answer to the humanistic atheism, we've lurched into the romanticism of post-modernity where now truth is found in my authentic experiences rather than in what God has said. Now we could easily kind of branch off in here into some more cultural criticism and maybe we should just for a minute or two. It's certainly true that even when it comes to arguing for something in our in our social space in the in the public square so to speak we tend to be susceptible to the emotive argument more than the rational one these days and even the way we argue about contemporary issues such as the the voice or the referendum 
it'll it'll end up being which side can tug at the heartstrings most effectively rather than which side presents the more rational argument. Oh, absolutely, yes. On the the marriage of homosexuality, uh, leaving aside the right or wrong of the uh, of that issue, the argument that won was love is love, which. Is not an argument. Rationally is nonsensical. Yes. Well, it's true, but it's 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 vacuous. Yes. Total tautology, but very powerful because it touched on the heartstrings of the community. Yes, indeed, and I, I sense that beckoning for us is a whole kind of diversion on our conversation here to talk about these questions, and so maybe we might try and stick to the question. And that is, I think, what we're saying so far is that. The Old Testament commandment, and indeed the whole sweep of the Bible's revelation about God, warns us about the error of thinking that you can feel God, that God has a kind of presence in the world that we can somehow reach out to and touch with our senses, perhaps by reaching a certain plane of feeling, or alternatively, that somehow by escaping our physical selves somehow, by rising up to some kind of mystical kind of zone of spiritual feeling, that's where we could contact God in some way, or in some way, that's where he lives in a way that we could encounter him or sense him or in some way experience him. And it's it's also us reaching up to him yes. rather than him speaking to us. So if we can organise church or our group together to do certain things, we will be able to reach up to God and, and experience him, him rather than the gospel where God reaches down to us in the person of his son and in the gospel message. I do think we sometimes underestimate just how significant that truth is, that God, the true and living God, who has spoken to us in the past through his prophets, he spoke to us in the past and related in a certain fashion, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, and that that speech, that relation of God to us came in a person and came in his words and in the words that proclaim his gospel and that the only way we have access to God, the only way we relate to God, is as he speaks to us through this gospel message and as he elicits a response in us to that message of obedience and faith and thanksgiving. Okay, but let me push back on it a little bit, though. We're still emotional people. We're still relational people. We still feel. Is it? Are we really trying to say here that the only way in which we are connected with God is uh, through the mental process of rational reflection on words. Is there no place for our human affections? Absolutely. This is where the conversation needs to go next because in one sense I'd like to say the place where our feelings and emotions and responses come in our relationship with God is responsive. When we hear him and understand and grasp by faith who he is and how wonderful and great and good he is, that stirs our hearts, that draws and attracts us to him. We come to love him. We come to rejoice in him. Um, the feelings and responses and affections we have are a response to God coming to us in his word. Won't our singing be emotional? But music Unemotional music seems to me to be a contradiction in terms. Absolutely it is. I mean, why, what's the point of singing unless it's, it's, a, it's a supercharged emotive form of speech? And this kind of brings us back to the situation Craig's mm. raised for us because I'm sure that the pastor that he is, is referenced here in this church, I'm sure theologically and by convictions, they're not mystics. 
I don't think they're seeking to contact God through the um, the hypersensory kind of plane. They'd be evangelical people. They're preaching a gospel. And yet they are constructing a church service, perhaps thinking that by having an atmosphere that is of a certain kind, it helps people to respond. It stirs their affections, as it were. Okay, well, they're, they're Americans. So affections is a key word for American evangelicals, of course. It's Jonathan Edwards. What, what What is he saying about affections? I think you've raised the right historical reference there. Um, Edwards, whenever you talk about affections or emotions, it's not very long before he enters the conversation. Because in his context, Jonathan Edwards, and he's often misquoted on this, I think, he certainly said that affections were incredibly important. In fact, he said that the affections were a chief aspect of our knowledge and relationship of God, by which he meant that Unless you respond to God by loving him, that is, unless your heart is stirred by the Holy Spirit to respond to the gospel, to love God and to seek his will and to obey him and to delight and rejoice in him, then you haven't really grasped the gospel and come to put your trust in it. Uh, and so much as evangelicals have always said that Evangelicalism is a is an experimental religion, is it's experiential religion, and it involves a complete reorientation of your whole person, a new heart that now loves God rather than it loves ourselves, and seeks to obey and rejoice in and give thanks to God. It's an orientation of our whole sense of our inner wants and and desires and what we love. That's what Edwards was talking about when he talked about the affections. And so, in his view, the affections were very important in Christianity because it signified that you'd actually heard and responded to the gospel, that you now were moved in love towards God rather than rebellion against him. But of course, in his context, historically, there was a huge controversy because as people were responding to God in the, in the revival that was happening at that point, the extraordinary kind of number of people were converted, these affections, these emotions, these responses were very dramatic. There was lots of people um, having very intense kind of experiences, falling down, breaking out into, into great expressions of emotion and tears. Um, and for conventional kind of Protestant Americans of the time, they found this very disconcerting. And so the controversy was, how could you tell a true spiritual affection from a false one? And his famous treatise on religious affections is really about this about how you would tell what an appropriate and true Christian affection towards God is and, and what's a false one. But uh, as, a, as a pastor of a congregation, my problem is slightly more prosaic in a sense. That is, I've got to create some atmosphere in the church because it doesn't matter what I do in leading the church next Sunday. There's going to be some sort of atmosphere. There's going to be some. What colour do I put the walls, paint the walls? You know, Because that affects that. How big an orchestra do we need? How many do our ladies are singing behind the the song leader? How you can't not engage in uh, an environment that is going to uh, affect people. So, where's the line? How how do I construct congregational life in a way that is not going to distort us off into the mysticism or the overly emotionalism that you're speaking of, but yet enables me to genuinely lead the congregation appropriately. Well, I hadn't quite finished what I was going to say about Edwards, and maybe Sorry. finishing what I was going to say on him 
might help in this. Because oh, good. Okay. essentially, he said... You mean I was ahead of you? Oh, yeah, as always. Yes, way ahead you. of me, mm. as always. You're always wanting to mm. cut to the chase, I know. Yeah. Essentially, what Edwards is ask, arguing is that a true spiritual affection, like a, a genuine spiritual movement of our hearts towards God, which is going to... We're going to take up our emotions in that. It responds to the goodness of God. He says there's all kinds of ways that you can stir up people's affections and they might be very high in their expression or not. That's all immaterial and there's no sign whatsoever that someone is genuinely responding to God. A genuine spiritual affection is when you come to perceive or apprehend something wonderful about who God is and respond to that. And so he is very strong in saying that the spiritual affections are stimulated and stirred as you come to hear, as you hear God's word, as you hear and understand something great and good about God, and are stirred by the Spirit to respond to that in in love and thanksgiving and joy. And so, for Edwards, if we can kind of, I don't want to recruit him too much to my side, as if that's the why not everybody else does. I, I suppose they do. <laughs> I think what he would want to say is that if we try to stimulate the affections through light and sound and music and so on, sure, you might stimulate affections. You might get people very emotional, but it won't be any sign whatsoever of true spirituality or true knowledge of God. That only comes as people really apprehend or understand something about who God is and respond to it. Um, that's what a genuine spiritual affection is. And so come back to your question then. What does that mean for how we frame and organise our church gatherings and the kind of atmosphere or vibe that we think is appropriate, it would seem to be that the principle is whatever vibe or atmosphere or set of arrangements makes it most convenient and helpful for people to hear God's word and understand it and then to respond to that word um, by the Spirit. And so... It's kind of like the edification principle in many respects of uh, that, that dominates New Testament thinking about church. You frame what you do in church. The principle is, does it build? Does it lead to the intelligible speaking of the word in 1 Corinthians 14 and our thankful and grateful, uh, obedient, faithful response to that word? And so I'd be thinking as a general principle, you want to frame the, the lighting, the sound, the atmosphere, the kind of arrangements of the church gathering in such a way that enables and encourages people to hear the word clearly and to have an opportunity to respond. Is that sufficient, do you think? Uh, well, that, that's a good principle. Can you say it again so we get it as a principle? Because I can think of lots of illustrations of the, the, the choices, decisions I had to make in leading meetings. What's the principle again? The principle is we should frame the arrangements of our church gathering in such a way as to promote the hearing of God's word and our response to it. Okay. So I've been to churches where the lights go down when the preacher preaches. That doesn't help people look at their Bibles, does it? That actually works against people looking at their Bibles and therefore listening with discernment uh, as the preacher uh, preaches. Interestingly, I've been to churches where the lights go up when the preacher preaches and they go down when we sing. Yes, well, that's strange again, too, because what it says is uh, now that we're preaching, we've moved back into the blandness of the of the world, whereas when we're singing, we're off into a, a different world. 
And that doesn't seem to be very valuable either. Especially because the process of singing together is at the same time a proclamation of the word to each other and for and with each other and a response to God. It's, yes. the, it's actually the one time in the church gathering, in some church gatherings, sadly, when the congregation stands and actually is active and does and says something. Uh, they say it to each other to kind of make it dark then so we can't see each other. That, In a sense, we're in, trying to enter into a different emotional zone, almost personal kind of individual yes. zone. I individual, think it's very unhelpful. It's very individual unhelpful. singing. I see it in song leaders all the time. They're in their own rapture, which is lovely for them, but... Uh, they should do it in their bedroom at home. We're in a church singing to one another. But manipulation, I've manipulated the congregation and I think I think I did the right thing. I'm happy for you to, to chastise me. But I remember it uh, many years ago at Katoomba Youth Conventions, end of January, thousands would come to these conventions. And the first meeting or two, the emotions were so high. It was uh, late teenagers, early 20s. People were really excited being in the big crowd. I always uh, organised the music to be very upbeat, loud initially, and then over two or three songs to get quieter and quieter as a way of letting people's emotions out and at the same time then quietening them down so they could be hearing what the meeting was about. Um, you, you didn't have to do much to get the emotions charging in that first song or two. Though. When you got 5,000 people in a tent, I remember being there. Yeah, but it was, it was in a sense manipulation. It was intentionally choosing music that would have the effect of changing the, the mood of the meeting. Is, is all manipulation wrong? No, uh, manipulation is a, is a harsh word, isn't it? It's sort of in, in, inherently a negative word for us. Yes, <laughs> but what we're going to what we're going to do in a church gathering will have an effect on the emotional trajectory or ups and downs of the flow of the gathering. Um, and I've written about this elsewhere. I think church gatherings have a the should have a theological flow to them, but they'll have an emotional flow to them whether we like it or not. And so to think thoughtfully about where and how you place different things so that the emotional flow of the gathering makes sense in terms of, now is the time when I'm quietening down to listen. Now is the time when I'm responding. Now is the time when I'm being more reflective. Now is the time when we're being chatty and informal. That, that, that you've thought about when and how that might happen, it seems to me to fit the edification principle that we're embodied, real human beings. Uh, we experience different things in different ways. How can we arrange our church gathering in such a way that as humans gathered here, we can hear and respond in the best way. That's just so, edifying, I think. So your principle does not rule out, but rather takes on board the kind of emotional affections that we are involved in in our gathering together. I mean, you you know the the colour of the architect of, of the walls and the, the the nature of the music would be all part of how you would seek to edify. Exactly. In thinking that what we're wanting is we're a group of, of humans with bodies gathered in this space to hear this word and respond to it. How could I thoughtfully think about the way we did that in a way that helped that happen? And in a sense, the, the kind of thing that Craig has written about um, is that principle taken to an unhelpful 
extreme because rather than thinking about how can I hear the word and respond, it seems to be trying to engender a response apart from and separate from the word, a response that is simply generated by the sensory experiences that are that are experienced. My my last little testing for you on this uh, principle is how culturally acclimatised are you expecting it to be? So you, you, you meet with a group of elderly Australians and singing old hymns uh, is a context in which they can relate and feel at home and listen to the word of God. But you go with a, a 21st century younger family or youth congregation, old hymns is an alienating experience for them. But the music that is their music is a music of percussion and experience rather than hearing and reflection. So how far can we go down that kind of musical experience to make them feel at home? That's a very good question because it makes us stop and think that what should drive us in all of those decisions is the centrality of the word and what God's revealed to us and who God is and who we are as his people and how that interacts with culture. I think you start with God and his word and God's culture, as it were, what God's word drives us to be and to do. And you bring that to the culture and say, as that person comes in, how can we help them move from a culture, a culture that's in rebellion against God, into a new way of thinking and being, which is the way Christians think and be together as people who are ruled by God's word. And so some aspects of the culture you would absorb in and use very happily because it fits with the way God's word might direct us to act and respond. Other aspects of the culture, you might say, actually, we're going to show ourselves different from that. I don't want you to feel comfortable in church in that aspect of your culture because we do things differently. Uh, and so, for example, a classic example might be the current culture is very strong on image and the importance of image and how graphics and images and pictures say everything. Um, that's very a dom very dominant idea in our culture. A picture is not only worth a thousand words, it's worth 10,000 words. But you come into, doesn't mean that in church we say, oh, that's what we should fill our church with pictures. We should preach our sermons through pictures. We should be an image-based church because that'll make our culture feel comfortable. You'd say, no, we're... We have, a, we have a closer bead on reality, on the God who speaks. And so our culture is going to be a much more word-based culture. In fact, it's going to cut across the current culture. So as you think about how you welcome and make people comfortable and make church accessible, you're thinking about all the ways in which you could flex and change things in a way that don't matter at all so as to help people not feel alienated. But at the same time, you're thinking our culture is going to make them feel uncomfortable and I want that. I think, Tony, we've uh, raised more questions for this uh, that will flow from it. What, what do people do when they've got questions? Well, yes, you're right. I hope we've done something to help Craig's uh, question and to answer it and to provide some principles. But, of course, there will be more questions, and I'm sure you'll have your responses. And as always, a simple way to do this, if you're uh, listening to this podcast on your podcast service, you can just email me at tonyjpain at me.com, tonyjpain at me.com. Or if you get the Two Ways News uh, email, which has the podcast within it and a text version of this discussion as well, you can just hit reply to that email, and it'll come through to me as well. And I'd be interested in how you've been grappling with these issues 
issues yourselves in your churches. That is, how to have a church gathering and experience that's word-centered and word-driven and provides opportunities for responding to that, but which doesn't kind of go too far down the line of seeking to create a sensory or mystical experience. Um, And there's all the issues of culture and adapting to culture that Philip's raised as well. So do get in touch, and thanks once again for being with us today. We'll no doubt come back to this in future episodes, um, but in the meantime, we should pray. How about I pray for us, Philip, that we we make good sense of what God has said to us and frame our church gatherings appropriately. Father, we do thank you so much that unlike the nations of the world who are in darkness, who, who fall into idolatry and who seek to reach you or understand you or manipulate you through mystical and idolatrous worship. We thank you so much that you speak to us and reveal yourself to us uh, through the story of Israel, through its history and through the shadows of Israelite religion. And finally coming to speak to us through your son and through the gospel that brings him to us. We thank you for that, Father, and pray that as we frame our church gatherings in light of the sun and the fullness that comes in him, that we wouldn't go back to the shadow, but we would stick with the reality, and that we'd be thoughtful and loving to those who come to our gatherings to frame our gatherings in a way that makes hearing your word and responding to it as simple as possible. Give us wisdom in all of this, Father, and we pray that you'd make our church gatherings of such a a character that they glorify you by glorifying your son in the gospel. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen.